as each person goes through their life and builds up experiences, their stock of experiences gets absorbed into this life principle. And so then the next generation inherits a kind of richer, sort of more contentful life principle. And by this means, she thinks that over time, we gradually become more more civilised and more cultured as the life principle gets passed down and it's getting refined more and more. Welcome to another installment of the New Work in Intellectual History podcast, an intermittent series produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. I'm your host for this episode, Emily Ebisher, and I'm a master's student in intellectual history at St. Andrews. You can find the Institute of Intellectual History on Twitter at St. Andrews IIH, and the website is intellectualhistory.net, where you can find a back catalogue of the interviews, digitalizations of primary source materials, and much more. This podcast series aims to showcase the most interesting and stimulating recent work in intellectual history, which is why for this episode we are talking with Professor Alison Stone. Hello Alison, how are you doing? Hi, hi, I'm good, thank you. So Alison is currently a professor of philosophy at Lancaster University and the author of, amongst others, the book we are talking about today, 19th Century Women Philosophers in Britain which was published by Oxford University Press and came out just earlier this year. So, Alison, could you kind of just introduce the book to us and tell us a little bit of background on how you came across the topic and what prompted you to write the book? Yes. Well, I've been interested in 19th century philosophy for a long time. And so, in fact, my first book was about Hegel Mm -hmm. and... I'd been working on 19th century philosophy for all this time, but it was only a few years ago that I began to wonder about women philosophers from this period. And I think it was actually a friend of mine, Kristin Gersdahl, who said she was looking at German 19th century women philosophers. She mentioned this to me and I kind of thought, oh, yeah, who were the 19th century women philosophers? And it was just one of these moments when I realised that I'd never, I'd never asked that question, um, and it's strange because this the situation with scholarship on the early modern period, it has really changed over the last thirty years, and now people are aware of all these early modern women philosophers and constantly rediscovering more and more new figures, but the nineteenth century has still been much less examined. And I think there's almost an idea has come about that women were more repressed in the 19th century than ever before, and that it must have been especially hard for them to do philosophy or be part of intellectual life. But I don't think this is actually true. I think the thing is that it's just that collectively we haven't looked at the women philosophers from this time and because we haven't looked we haven't investigated them so we don't know about them and so we don't not knowing about them we don't think there were any women intellectuals then 
And so then we rationalise it, saying it must have been a particularly exclusive period. But, I mean, obviously there were exclusions. You know, for much of the century, women couldn't go to university, for instance. But there were also ways that women could participate by virtue of publishing and, and print culture and so on. So I don't think it was this uniformly oppressive period for women that we've that we sometimes think yeah and I mean we'll come back on how we can then approach these women um which you talk about in your first chapter I thought also it was interesting because you say I think in the introduction that when we talk about women it's usually also just concerning their views on feminism for example so I guess it's a little bit of a more self-evident question, but what kind of contribution were you then trying to make with with your book? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, but I guess listeners won't necessarily. So I look at 12 women who wrote mm -hmm. philosophy in Britain at this time. And in terms of the contribution I want to make, in large part, it's really just to raise awareness of these women and make people aware of some of what their their works were and encourage people to look into them more. But as you have just alluded to as well, I wanted to make people aware of the range of areas of philosophy that they looked at between them. And so I've got the the structure is that there's these 12 women who are covered but then it's organized by themes and sort of looking at a group of women on each theme in turn and so the themes are about naturalism i in the sense of whether natural science can tell us everything about reality so there's naturalism and then the mind, evolution, and then the relations between morality and religion, and then historical progress. And so, as you have just referred to, I really wanted to show that women didn't just write about feminism, because um, there's been so much focus on that when people look at women writers thinkers of this period which I think as well is probably an, a consequence of how we've come to see it as this particularly oppressive period so therefore people I think would often assume well women must have been engaged primarily with feminism because after all they were completely excluded from everything so they must have been preoccupied with opposing their exclusion so so anyway, um, I, I wanted to show that they you know, they thought about the whole range of areas of philosophy, even though inevitably there were some there were still many areas I had to leave out for for manageability's sake. And there was loads of writing by women in 19th century Britain about animal ethics, for instance, it was a huge issue. And there's also lots on this aesthetics. So there's there's other areas besides that that I couldn't fit in. Yeah, well, maybe that's um, some topics for further work. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, could you 
tell us maybe a little more about kind of the difficulties one encounters when um when trying to trace these women's contributions in um nineteenth century philosophy because as you said, it's not that they're necessarily so oppressed um but there's kind of other factors and just the way in which philosophy is done as well at the time, so if you could kind of elaborate yeah. a bit on that well, I think. For scholars, collectively, one of the things that's been a difficulty about tracing women's contributions to philosophy in this particular place and period is that I think people have not really been been that much aware of the the print culture that existed in 19th century Britain, because it was absolutely, it was, it, it was vast. So this and this was not only books; it was, it was journals. So the novelist Wilkie Collins described it as the age of periodicals. There were all these journals, and really, the journal article was just as important as the book at the time. But although there is a research field of the study of Victorian periodicals, it hasn't. Uh, philosophers haven't haven't kind of had much interaction with it so i think partly people haven't been able to find women's philosophy because they haven't appreciated that this is the place to look but then there's this complication so several complications one being that the convention in british journals at the time for most of the century, was for everything to be anonymous, for everything non-fiction to be anonymous. And then even once signature began to become more common, people would still often use pseudonyms or just initials. And so, of course, that makes it harder to find what women women have written. So, for example, one of the women I, I looked at, Julia Wedgwood, wrote a huge number of things in The Spectator. Obviously, the magazine The Spectator still exists, but it was quite different in the 19th century. But Wedgwood wrote all these things in it, but they're they're anonymous. And so it's very difficult to, to reconstruct which things were by her. And then, of course, it's difficult to reconstruct who's responding to her things because, yeah, so... So that's that's a problem. And there was also the the problem that people didn't include loads of references in the way that you do now in academic publications. So it would be pretty common to have a journal article that might not it might reference no one, or if it did, it might be just a brief allusion or two. Usually to the biggest names probably either John Stuart Mill or Herbert Spencer, especially Spencer. So in a way, it's it's a pattern that you still see philosophers do now, citing up, as it's called. So you cite the sort of the most prestigious person that you can, even if there's a less prestigious person whose work is actually a lot more relevant to what you're what you're talking about. So so they they really did that. And this meant that even where there were references in women's work, well, and men's, it was it was never really 
to women. So women didn't mm. reference one another and men didn't reference women. So, so that obviously as well makes it harder to kind of trace what, what take up and influence women's philosophical writing has had. One of the examples of this that I, I mentioned in the book that's particularly glaring is where Thomas Henry Huxley wrote this reply defending Darwin from his critics, but he only talked about two of the three critics to whom Darwin had sent copies of The Descent of Man. So the third person to whom he'd sent a copy and actually the person he was most urgent to, to get a response from was Francis Power Cobb. But Huxley didn't mention the existence of Cobb in his article at all. So, so all of these things present complications, although I should say that as well, it, they presented opportunities. So anonymity, it obviously makes it harder in some ways to track what women contributed. Uh, but then in other ways, it meant it helped women to be able to participate because you weren't going to be criticised for publishing philosophy as a woman if nobody knew that the author of the piece was a woman in the first place. Yeah, so basically that problem of, of referencing, that's something that affects also both both women and men. But I guess what makes it that it's even harder with women is that they they never at the top of the ladder, like a Spencer, um, that, that kind of gets mentioned sometimes. Um, you also talk about, um, I think, uh, around the 1870s, that's when kind of have a shift where there's a professionalization happening within philosophy, yes. which makes it even harder for women to, to get acknowledged within the field of philosophy. Absolutely, because the thing about the the print culture up until that point is that it was it was deliberately non-specialist, and so the journals would have contributions from people coming from what we now see as very different disciplines, and all talking to one another. And then specialization and professionalization came in from the eighteen seventies, and that created more of a, a momentum towards a situation where ultimately if you were going to speak on a topic you had to be an expert mm -hmm. you had to be quite likely based at a university working at a university um, and you had to have the right credentials whereas earlier on anyone could could publish in the journals and so Herbert Spencer being a case in point, because as people know, he, he wasn't a professional academic, and yet he, along with Mill, was the most, he was the most influential and highly regarded philosopher at the time. So, of course, Mill wasn't an, an, a professional academic either. But then the culture began to change. And of course, women by that point could, in to a limited extent, go to university by the 1870s. It was beginning to open up to women, but still it was it was very few women initially who were able to progress through that system and then become academics. So as this mm -hmm. the 
the rise of this the rise came in of this system where you've got to be an academic to speak about a topic it it made it harder for women again because now they had this new set of hoops that they had to jump through first and I also think that in a way in hindsight that's some of why the women I look at got left out of the history of philosophy from this time because when 20th century people were looking back they were they've been looking for uh, for philosophers to have been based at universities and to look more like what they've come to expect of a professional philosopher and of course these women don't don't fit that that image so would you say that actually kind of contrary to common perceptions um women might have more possibilities um to participate in intellectual life in 19th century than than in the 20th century i mean i don't know about more it's 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 very tricky i think mm. i think possibly because if we look at the percentage of women publishing in professional philosophy journals in the mid 20th century particularly it got down really low i mean people haven't tracked it for all journals but they've looked at it for one or two and it you know we're talking about like women providing maybe 5% of content and with the 19th century journals, women contributed at least 13% of all of the content. Now that wasn't, of course, it wasn't all philosophy, but you know, if we assume that that roughly, you know, that means that of the part of it that was philosophy, women might have contributed as much as 13%. It's still not great, but in a way compared to the mid 20th century it's it, it it's possibly better um and come kind of coming to kind of the more practical side of it um you know if these women weren't referenced and if they themselves didn't reference each other how did you kind of practically go about to reconstructing also these um yeah. Oh, these yeah. relationships these women have between themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so in in the case of some of these women, at least, there's already quite a bit of historical scholarship, and bi mm -hmm. there are biographies, and the sometimes they themselves wrote autobiographies, and so all of that is quite useful for for reconstructing the the networks that they were in. But I also have found that their their letters to be really important, their correspondence. In the case of some of them, the, the better known people, such as Harriet Martineau, for instance, all, all of her letters are published. For some of the others, there's archives. And for some of the others, it's more tricky because... Um, you've got their correspondence with different people that's archived within the archives of those other people mm -hmm. rather than the women 
in their own right. But anyway, I found letters really useful because women will refer much more openly there to one another, saying when they're reading something by other women or responding to it or which other women have been role models for them or were were kind of antagonists. For instance, with Arabella Buckley, one of the people I look at, I found her letters really useful with lots of mentions of other women. And I remember, because I was convinced that some of what Buckley had written seemed to be a criticism of Francis Power Cobb, and I kind of went into these letters sort of thinking, wouldn't it be great if I come across a reference to her saying, you know, I disagree with Cobb. And there it was. So that was that was a really nice, that was a nice moment. Mm. But it also points to one of the the limitations at the moment, which is that I had to look at Buckley's letters with Richard Garnet, which are in the Garnet family papers, and Buckley's letters with Alfred Russell Wallace, which are in the Wallace correspondence project because one of the the sort of biases that we inherit is that a lot more of men's letters and documents and so on have been archived uh, compared to women and so in a way we then come back to the same problem again that when we want to piece together the relations amongst women we're still kind of having to do it by way of their relations with men. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, a lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> in um, some way, I mean, sometimes it's really easy, you know, when people have already mm -hmm. gathered all of Harriet Martineau's letters and published them, I mean, you know, it's just um, invaluable, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And with George Eliot's letters as well. Yeah, I guess with the those figures are a little bit better known. At mm, least there's some mm -hmm. pre-work um, done on it. That, um, and I was I was just kind of wondering as well what kind of social standing these these women would have um, in their societies at, at the time. I mean, because on the one hand you have Martino and Cobb, who seem to be very influential and quite famous. Um, and then you have other figures which might have a bit less of a standing. Yes, absolutely. And I, I should have mentioned this earlier when you were asking me about what contribution I wanted to make. But I quite I, I deliberately tried to have some better known people, like people whose whose names would be known, such as George Eliot and Ada Lovelace. Mm -hmm. And then to have others like Julia Wedgwood and Arabella Buckley where people would be less likely to know of them but absolutely some of them were really pretty celebrated at the time as as you've mentioned Harriet Martineau and and Francis Power Cobb Annie Besant was was also very mm -hmm. well known in a different way so was Helena Blavatsky although for many you know she was um she was always sort of uh, controversial and, and a bit dubious but still she was very well known and 
so in in the case of Martineau and and Cobb, they 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 wrote quite a lot of popular journalism as well as the more theoretical work. So obviously mm. that helped to make them known. So Cobb, for for a number of years, she wrote several leaders each week for a major London daily newspaper at the time. And it's interesting because the, the newspaper, they provided Cobb with her own office. So it's kind of a case of a woman who mm -hmm. did have a, a room of her own for, for writing. So, so yeah, they they were quite well known. And I mean, it's I think it can be hard for us to realize this because because they've been forgotten. I mean, in the case of Cobb, you know, she's really quite unknown today. Martineau is remembered more, but I mm -hmm. still don't think she is really remembered to an extent that's that's proportionate to how famous she was. Um, because once she brought out these illustrations of political economy that that made her famous you know everyone wanted to know her and talk to her and she had politicians wanting her to write more illustrations to put forward the particular reforms that they wanted brought in and then after that she was at the center of further controversies because of her opposition to slavery in the US and then because she supported mesmerism, i.e. hypnotism, and then her atheism, or she was just at the centre of all these controversies. I mean, in terms of how well-known she was at the time, I was thinking, you, you know, maybe the analogy would be with someone like Richard Dawkins, you know, just this, this sort of love-hate mm -hmm. kind of figure. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, she really was, she, she was massive and and so, so was Cobb. Yeah, and also seemed to just have put out so much work. If we take into account the letters that they wrote as well, it's, I find it quite incredible. <laughs> it is. I mean, in the case of Martineau, she had a very, um, a very austere writing regime. You know, she would sit down and she'd basically um, say that within 15 minutes, she always found she'd begun to get writing and she would just write, you know, for hours a day. Um, and, um, and, and lots of them did, as you say, with the correspondence as well. And I suppose it's partly because Obviously, these were these were generally they were fairly well off women, um, so they had domestic servants. They weren't having to do a lot of that kind of routine stuff because they weren't academics. It's not like lots of their time was taken up with teaching or administration. So you know they could almost just be really kind of pure intellectuals. But yeah, I think, you know, they wrote very fast and and apparently in the case of Cobb, um, she could actually be writing um, with 
two hands simultaneously. Yeah, well, I wish I could do that. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's now kind of get into the kind of the main part of your book, which is the different topics that the, these women wrote on. And what one thing um, which I wanted to ask, which I, I guess is, is linked to the fact that these women had mostly had authority within the realm of morality and, and religion, but it kind of seems that the question of religion and morality is kind of the, the running thread that links everything together in the way that it all kind of comes back to that. Do you think that's a fair kind of assessment? Absolutely, yeah. I thought that that was a um, a very perceptive point. Yes, I agree. I think it is. Because although, as I've said, women wrote about all these different topics, but religion comes into all of them. So in terms of whether evolution was compatible or not with religion and whether that was a problem or when they wrote about the relations between the mind and the brain, the issue of whether there's an immortal soul and through that, um, whether there's um, whether there's an afterlife and basically whether the Christian picture of, of things is true or not, you know, that was connected as well. So religion comes into all of these topics and with it, morality as well because it was so often thought either that morality depends upon Christianity which was something that that some of these people such as Cobb for instance argued explicitly mm -hmm. it was either that people thought morality depends on religion or if they were secularists they still felt that they had to really try to show that morality could be extricated from religion and it didn't have to depend upon it. So they didn't think that they could just kind of write about morality without considering religion. So, yeah, it, it threads through everything. And I think this may create a difficulty for some readers today because a lot of philosophers now I think about two-thirds of philosophers now say that they're secularists so they might find a lot of this this writing a bit um a bit inaccessible because the religious mm. concerns they're just so pervasive in philosophy in Britain at this time and I think the only thing I, I I could say about that was just to try to urge people to keep an open mind and, you know, mm -hmm. um, not be sort of such dogmatic secularists that we just sort of think, oh, poof, you know, all this is, is totally outdated now and of no, no interest anymore. Yeah. And is that a kind of feature you think with just 19th century philosophy in general? Or is it maybe exacerbated with women's philosophy? Yeah, great. Another great question. So I think it's partly Britain 
Um, mm -hmm. So people have said that with 19th century Britain, it was such an intensive religious climate. And I think the explanation for that that I find most plausible is because is that there were so many dissenters. So up to about a third of all religious believers were dissenters. And because they were dissenting from the established church, they tended to be pretty intensive in their belief. And then the the church, the Church of England competing with them had to become intensive as well. Um, and then, of course, because all that was already quite intense, the people who were turning to secularism and atheism, agnosticism, they also got very intense and and strenuous um so it's so it's partly britain and at the same time yes i would also say it's it's even more marked in the case of of women's writing because there was this set of assumptions that that women were were sort of seen as especially connected with piety and devotion as well mm. as morality. So women were expected to be more pious and more virtuous than men. And even though some of these women were rejecting that, they were still shaped by it. Um, I kind of wanted to come back to Martineau because we we've addressed it kind of briefly before that she converted to atheism. And I thought she seems to have a very interesting um, intellectual trajectory uh, and in a sense of of having already in her early writing a kind of tension between her philosophy and her, her religion. Um, if you can tell us a mm -hmm. bit more about that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, she did go on a very... It is a, a complicated journey, but she started off in the 1810s and 1820s within this particular Christian sect, if, if sect is quite the right word, Unitarianism. And so this was a very, at the time, it was a very rationalistic form of Christianity, if you like. So it was, there was a lot of stress on freedom of inquiry and how we need to investigate the world scientifically and that the universe is governed by invariant laws which are laid down by God and so as we investigate the world and find out about its laws we are understanding God's plan and basically to simplify it in the extreme for Martineau over time the rationalist and empiricist side of that drove out the the religious side of it and this this happened in various stages but the the by the time that that process that she went through was complete in 1851 she brought out this book letters on the laws of man's nature and development and it used letters that she'd exchanged with Henry George Atkinson and and this book it it was it was hugely controversial at the time 
So, so basically, it was apparent within it that Martineau was now what she called a philosophical atheist, as opposed to a, a, a dogmatic atheist. And her view now was that we can know about the laws that govern the universe. There are these invariant laws regulating everything. We can learn about them empirically. But we can't take a further step to know about any divine originator of these laws. And Martineau says at one point, we know nothing beyond law, do we? So she was now taking the view that if there is any divine originator, we can't possibly know about them. And because we can't know about them, we don't have any grounds for believing that there is any any such person there at all. And at the time, you know, this this was explosive because of the religious intensity of British culture that we were just talking about. And then there was a, I mean, there were there were various other controversies in which Martineau was involved, but then the one, the controversy about her atheism, it then broke out again later, just after she died, when her autobiography came out. And she'd held it from publication for years because she knew it would be so controversial. And one of the things that she said in that was that we ought to regulate our actions in line with these invariant laws. So we should do the things that the invariant laws of the universe make necessary anyway. And this is how to be genuinely impartial and unselfish, she she suggested. Whereas Christians do the right thing for her only out of the selfish motive that then they'll be rewarded in the afterlife. So she she suggested that it was atheists who were actually unselfish and genuinely moral, whereas Christians claim to be moral, but really they're selfish. So so that was another and and she and in fact she as well denied in the autobiography, she denied that there was an afterlife. And she said she felt happy that there wasn't any afterlife to think that 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 was going to be it and people found this they found this horrifying i mean i guess we might now think that's a bit strange but i think the the dominant victorian attitude was very much to look forward to the afterlife as a place where you would be reunited with with loved ones and martino was taking that away mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you say as well in the book that what was kind of special about it is that she has this kind of positive, very positive outlook and her transition also to atheism is really portrayed as this kind of liberation um, mm -hmm. and not as maybe something anxiety-inducing or, or something you like, which is often the way it's portrayed. That's right. I mean, too, the way she portrays it in the autobiography is that when she was still religious, she was constantly anxious about what might be going to happen to her after she died and um, about sort of monitoring herself constantly for, for transgressions. And then she was liberated from all of that. And she basically uh, compares it to the 
the prisoner coming out of Plato's cave into into the sunlight. And she talks about, you know, free roving on this this bright, breezy sunlight commons. And of course, it so it was totally opposed to the kind of classic Victorian crisis of faith, where it's like you're happy as long as you're within within religion and probably within Anglicanism. And then you begin to have doubts and and then all these anxieties come in and everything falls apart. And Martineau had it the other way around. It's sort of when you're within religious that you're anxious and troubled. And once you escape, you're you're free and happy and and serene. Mm -hmm. So it was very much opposed to the way that the Victorians tended to experience things. Yeah, maybe this would be a good point um, to compare that with Cobb's argument for religion, because she seems to have that point of view of, well, if there was no religion, the world would just be a terrible place. So yes. it's better if we stay with religion in a way. Yes, she does. Um, yes. So, I mean, she she thought this in several ways. She thought that morality is about duty and for there to be duties, you have to have a moral law. To have a moral law, you have to have a, a legislator and they have to be an absolute legislator. So it, it has to be God. And so for that reason, she thought without, without religion and especially without Christianity, she, she didn't think that people would, would be moral at all. And she also thought that we have to believe in an afterlife and in, in personal immortality because we, we look forward to that as somewhere where we will see wrongs being righted and happiness being proportioned to virtue. And without that, she thought we'd just look around and we'd see that the, the world's full of suffering, which is kind of unredeemed, and we would see as well that the wicked people often prosper. And again, we would lose faith in in morality. And indeed, we would just lose any kind of hope that it's worth carrying on with existence at all, she thought, unless we have the idea of, of an afterlife where, where things are going to go better. Um, so, so yeah, in in both ways, she thought we have to have we have to have religion, and she did have a very bleak view of what things would be like if, as she thought was happening, if if then present trends continued and atheism became more and more widespread. She thought this was a disaster in the making. So in. In one of the chapters of the book, you talk about these women's view on evolution and Darwin's account of, of evolution. And you talk about Wedgwell, who seems to have written a quite remarkable dialogue, um, which she called The Boundaries of Science. Could you tell us a bit more about what makes this dialogue special and, and her views on, on Darwin's theory? Mm, absolutely. So this dialogue, she published it in... In 1861, 1860 to 61, it's worth men me mentioning as well that she was Darwin's 
niece. So she she had a dialogue between these two people, but they worked towards the understanding that Darwinism and Christianity are compatible with one another. And the the view that they eventually come to is that God has set the evolutionary process in motion and it's he sort of set it off and he's also got a plan of the basic forms of the different species and then evolution sort of implements this and works out the physical details of of how it happens and Wedgwood also suggests that part of God's plan is for human beings to to be moral agents, and so uh, the he he so sets up the evolutionary process that it ends up bringing us about with the right kinds of physical bodies to realize what he plans for us in terms of our being able to be moral agents. So, I mean, I realise that to to a lot of readers now it might sound like she she she's just kind of a conservative kind of fitting Darwinism in with Christianity and not really confronting what a challenge Darwin Darwinian evolution was, but from her perspective, as she saw it at the time she she was defending Darwinism by kind of speaking to this predominantly Christian audience and saying, look, you don't have to reject the evolution because it is, it is compatible with your Christian beliefs. Although I should add that over time, though, in subsequent decades, Wedgwood, she did become more, more unequivocally conservative herself, um, and and went more onto the side of religion rather than Darwinism, but but that was later anyway. I mean, it seems that um, from the women you talk about, at least most of them would kind of accept the basics of Darwin's theories, but then most of the debate is about whether you know our kind of moral capacities and moral traits are included within that um theory of evolution yes um is that kind of a fair assessment absolutely yeah yeah absolutely so wedgwood thought that evolution it could um account for our having moral capacities and that arabella buckley thought that too and by the time that buckley wrote about this darwin himself had also written about morality in in the descent of man where he suggested that we could have an evolutionary account of people's moral moral feelings and and moral responses whereas Cobb on the other hand thought um she thought this didn't really work and and that you can only really understand morality as as being established by God kind of from the outside of nature that for her morality has to come 
from from a transcendent realm outside mm -hmm. of nature and you you can't get it you can't get it out of nature yeah which is then buckley um as i said she tries to argue that evolutionary theory even when you extend it to to human traits and feelings moral traits and feelings is actually compatible with morality and christianity and she has this notion of uh traductionism i don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly um which i thought was quite interesting so if you could tell us a bit more about that absolutely i i believe it is is traditionism so this was an essay that she published in 1879 about the soul and the theory of evolution and so she said here that she was putting forward an account of spiritual evolution so she said that she's not a materialist about the mind that is to say she doesn't think that that life and the mind can be reduced to physical processes but she also rejected the the standard view that God specially creates each person's soul and infuses it into their body during conception, during gestation. So she rejected that as well. And she says, on the other hand, that there's a life principle. It doesn't reduce to anything material. It's shared by all living beings, in, including all human beings. And it's passed down through the generations in reproduction. And then she argues that as each person goes through their life and builds up experiences, their stock of experiences gets absorbed into this life principle. And so then the next generation inherits a kind of richer, sort of more contentful life principle. And by this means, she thinks that over time, we gradually become more more civilised and more cultured as the life principle gets passed down and it's getting refined more and more. And the reason why, why this is called traducianism, I don't think I actually made this clear in the book, is that in theology, this is the view that rather than God creating each soul, he just created the first soul. I think I'm getting this right, i.e. Adam's soul. And then that is transmitted subsequently through mm -hmm. reproduction. Um, and so this was sometimes seen as an explanation for original sin and how it gets, how it, it gets passed down. But obviously Buckley's got a more optimistic take on it that um as it's passed down we gradually uh get rid of our our more sort of brutal and base instincts and we gradually become more civilized for her so yeah i mean i found it a really fascinating essay yeah and it's it sort of, yeah it sort of exemplifies how one of the things i really like with a lot of these women is that in a way because it wasn't yet a specialist culture you know they could just go straight into kind of the big questions mm. you know they didn't need to sort of worry about you know I'm 
going to have to spend a load of time just establishing one tiny bit of this picture and referencing all the other people. You know, they could just go, you know, deal with the things themselves, if you like. Yeah, and I, I think it seems that um, kind of the debate surrounding evolution is also a good example of the standing that some of these women had, because I think Darwin himself also asked for the review, I think, was it Cobb, if I'm not mistaken? Mm. Um, so he actually asked her to write a review as well. Um, so that's just yeah. another example of the fact that um, these women did have quite a bit of influence at the time. Absolutely. I mean, in, and in the case of Wedgwood too, she was in conversation with with Darwin, mm. um, partly through their family connections, but but not just that. And in the case of Buckley, she knew she knew Darwin as well. So yeah, they were all um, they they were sort of at the heart of of these discussions. Because I wish we could talk about kind of all of these views but that's why people should go read mm -hmm. the book um but i think kind of one last um thing i'd like to get into because i thought it just seemed quite incredible to me was um blavatsky has this theory of historical progress um which is an account of cosmic cyclical evolution which which just sounds incredibly complex so if you could yes. give us a little bit of a overview of what she did there. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to give it a brief overview because it's in this this book, The Secret Doctrine, which which is is vast, and it it follows quite well from Buckley's essay because they're both talking about spiritual evolution in a way, but in basically, so Blavatsky, this is this is her statement of of theosophy. Um, this kind of philosophical come spiritual worldview that that she created, and so she thought there were successive universes coming and going, and each one has a chain of planets within it. And then she thought there's also in each universe uh, a wave of monads, as she calls them, and so these waves of monads come into being and they make their way round these planets, including in each universe, there's a, a, a planet that's the most material. And that in, in our case is the earth. And the monads go on this journey round it. So she does also say that you could think of the monad as, as a pilgrim on this this cosmic journey so they the monads they go through this series of what blavatsky calls root races so these are, are somewhat different from the the races that we would be familiar with in terms of the taxonomy of caucasians and so on um, she's got her own taxonomy and the fifth of these root races is what she calls the Aryan race. And this includes all the people through from ancient India into the Near East and Northern Africa and the Mediterranean and Europe. So 
So these monads kind of go through these successive root races. And then she thought there was going to be two future root races still to come. She thought that one of them was was emerging in the US because it was a, a sort of melting pot. So mm-hmm. that this a new root race was coming into being there. And basically through going through this journey through these root races, what happens is that the monads they realize these seven elements. She thinks every monad has these these seven elements like um an astral body and a vital body, a physical body, intellect, soul, and spiritual soul. And so um, each root race realizes one of those aspects. So the current, what she thought of as the currently dominant root race, the Aryans realize uh, the intellect particularly. But through going through going through these root races, all these different elements will ultimately have to be realized. And basically, once this is complete and and all the monads have gone through all of the seven root races, then their journey on Earth will be complete and and they'll they'll move they'll move elsewhere. Um, so I mean that's that's to <laughs> simplify this. Um, I mean, th- this incredible system, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it, it was yeah, just a really incredible kind of account that, that she gave that. And can you maybe, as a last point, talk about how that also relates to her theosophy, which is a big part of of her philosophy, kind of generally? Mm. Mm, yeah. Well, so she thinks that um so really what 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 needs ultimately to happen as the monads have gone through this journey, they've kind of sunk into the most physical levels of existence. And that now they need to kind of return to a more spiritual existence and gradually realize these more spiritual aspects such as so the intellect first and then it will be soul and then it will be spirit so she thought there was this process whereby the monads first ascend and become material and then they need to reascend and become spiritual so that's that's the goal and she therefore thought that in a way the more we can we can detach ourselves from from physical desires within this life we can kind of accelerate if you like we can accelerate our way on this on this spiritual progression and and so that was the the kind of personal spiritual side of it if you like one of the other things about theosophy is that i mean i've just been talking as if it was it it was just blavatsky's claims but she portrayed this position as being expressed within this ancient tibetan text um 
So Blavatsky, she had been on these incredible journeys, incredible, you know, for the time. Mm. She had um, travelled around a large part of the world and she she said she had spent time in Tibet. It's a bit debated whether she actually had, but she said that while she was there, she'd she'd read this ancient text and a lot of what she was doing was restating its claims but whether or not that that text existed the 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 thing i wanted to emphasize about it is that she thought there was this ancient spiritual wisdom that had it was best preserved in the regions around india rather than in europe and so she saw herself as 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 re-expressing the wisdom of the people of of india and its traditions and this was obviously quite it it was it was quite a threat to to various europeans at the time because she was basically saying that uh the most original wisdom lay in the East and Europeans needed to learn from, from the people of India rather than the other way around. And this also, this all relates to the nature of theosophy as well, because it was kind of the first alternative religion, if you like. And you can see how Blavatsky began the idea that for spiritual wisdom, Westerners need to go to the East and they need to relearn from the East and get away from the sort of decadence and materialism of the West and rediscover the spirituality of the East. So it is kind of Orientalist, but it it also um, challenges the, the hierarchy that, that most Westerners then believed in that where they thought, you know, they had the knowledge that the other people of the world needed to learn from and not the other way around. Well, I think we're going to have to bring it to an end. But um, okay. if you can, in one or two sentences, do you have one big takeaway we should take from looking at these these women philosophers? Like I say, I really like the fact that they they just tackle big questions directly. Mm -hmm. So that's something I find quite inspiring about them. Even though they, they had this difficult position as women doing philosophy, it, they, you know, they didn't hesitate to just kind of make these quite bold claims about the nature of the universe and, and the purpose of our lives. So that's something I like about them. And more generally, I would just want to encourage people to to read them because they're, they're great fun. Yes, yeah. And your book is a great introduction to them. Um, Thank you. But, yeah, I think it's interesting. Also, as you said, it challenges kind of the way we think about philosophy and, and what it means to do philosophy, actually. Um. But yeah, so what's in store for the future for you now? So I'm working on women again in 19th century Britain and their thoughts specifically about aesthetics and philosophy of art. Well, we're looking forward to, to that. 
uh, when that's gonna be coming. Thank and you. thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Thanks for the great questions. Mm-hmm.